All right, let's go James chapter 1. James chapter 1, if you uh, don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, if you don't have one that you could call yours, the one that you could claim to be my Bible, uh, we invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, I mean, I know that there's fancier ones out there, but this one has like a hardcover and kind of golden edges. It's kind of pretty. All right? uh, we, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but the, the biggest of all of the amazing things that he uses it for is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped uh, by knowing him, uh, understood through the lens of knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, like just run the little equation in your head, uh, go pressing into his word, and he will use it for his good purposes. And so uh, I'll, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. I'll call it the best part of my day. Uh, so we took last week off. I hear that Hal did a pretty decent job. <laughs> a couple of people were like, yeah, we got to get that guy back. All right? uh, I don't know if he has any other sermons. I know he likes that one. All right, but uh, it's, it <laughs> it's great. I'll, I'll let him know that you were pleased. All right. Um, no, listen, it's time to pick up our James series again. Uh, it's week number seven, if you're keeping score at home. Uh, now, in case you're brand new around here, uh, James is a letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. All right, um, and so he was a reluctant to follow Jesus at the beginning. Yeah, you know how brothers are. Uh, wasn't really buying the Messiah thing until Jesus rose from the dead, and then Jesus got him there. All right, and so uh, eventually he becomes one of the leaders of the early church. Uh, but the letter that bears his name is a little different uh, stylistically, a little different in a couple of different ways uh, than the other uh, New Testament letters. Uh, for starters, it's structured differently uh, than a lot of the other New Testament letters. Uh, while the letters of Paul and John and Peter, you've probably read some of those, uh, they all carry a very logical flow to them. Uh, here is this incredible truth about the, the reality of the gospel. And because this thing is true, that we should therefore live in, in, in this matter. In this manner, okay? Uh, this thing is wonderful, and so this ought to change our life. And here's all the ways that it changes our life. That's kind of the flow of Paul's letters and Peter's letters and John's letters, all right? Uh, but James is aiming for something different, all right? Rather than a logical progression of thought, James reads more like Old Testament wisdom literature, all right? Old Testament wisdom literature. In previous weeks, we've described the book of James as a collection of long-form proverbs. Or we can... We can paint that picture in a more poetic way you can think of james as pearls on a string all right pearls on a string look at this amazing truth look at it from this angle and look at it from that oh man what a truth that is oh and look at this amazing truth what a what a truth that is this changes everything that's the structure of james but it's not just different in structure and intent that's not all the second reason that the letter of James is different, is because it's written to an incredibly broad audience. Incredibly broad audience. Uh, most of the New Testament epistles are addressed to uh, a specific church in a specific location. Think Corinth, right? The church at Corinth got a couple of letters. Uh, there are some letters that are addressed to uh, churches in a broader region. Think Galatia, all the churches in Galatia. And there are a few letters that are addressed specifically to individuals, guys like Titus or Timothy, Philemon. Uh, but James, James goes, goes a different route. He casts his net as wide as it can be cast. Right? Uh, and so back up in verse 1 of this letter, he says, he, he calls his audience the 12 tribes of the dispersion, meaning all of God's people who have been scattered out. That's what he's saying. And so based on that and based on 
what we think is the, the right estimation of when this letter was written, probably early to mid-40s A.D., I believe that James's audience is all Christians who have been scattered out from Jerusalem uh, after the earliest wave of persecution in the, the first century church. If you're not familiar with the story, even though uh, Jesus commanded his followers to be his witnesses in all the earth, to, be, to make disciples of all nations, um, we're told in the book of Acts that, uh, well, the church just kind of hung around in Jerusalem for a while. For a couple of years, in fact. Uh, We're not told explicitly. It's not spelled out for us explicitly in the text. But the story seems to be that God motivated them to get up and go. And how did he do that? Well, he raises up a guy named Saul, a Pharisee at the time, in Acts chapter 8, who launches a persecution campaign. And we're told in Acts chapter 8 that everybody scatters. Everybody flees Jerusalem except for the apostles. Now, if we date the letter to the early 40s, That means that that first wave of persecution had died down by that point. The first wave probably happened in the mid-30s. And so Saul slash Paul had become a Christian, uh, just kind of barely become a Christian by this point. He hadn't gone out and done anything yet, hadn't written any letters. Uh, But people had begun to settle into these new locations. They'd been scattered out from Jerusalem, and now they're settling into all of these scattered places across the known world. Um, And so uh, one of those places is is a place called Antioch, where a church was started. And we think that's where Saul, Paul, was being discipled. But persecution would flare up from time to time, not led by Saul anymore, but led by Jewish, other Jewish leaders, and even eventually by Rome itself. And so James's audience, we've talked about this at length, is quite familiar with the idea of trials. We, we, we tend to have a certain definition of trials in our life. Well, that's not wrong, it's not out of bounds, it's not incorrect or a bad definition of trials, but James's version of trials includes everything all the way up to literal persecution and murder. So it's a broad category. And James's audience is incredibly familiar with it, and so that reality was the platform of what we talked about for through the first several weeks of this series. James calls them to see their trials, uh, see the, the, the hardships in their lives and the pains in their life in a different way than what we're all naturally inclined to see them. He says, to account of their trials as the fullness of joy because they were both given by and used by God to grow you in good and necessary things. Chief among those good and necessary things is that, that they ultimately point you back to God's surpassing goodness and help you cling to him when less eternal joys prove just how uneternal they are. That's the point. And that's where we left things off two weeks ago. Took a little break and now we're back. James had to, James had to attack the, the, the elephant in the room. He had to start off addressing that. And he's ready to move past that elephant, those trials now, and discuss other things that he wants his really broad audience to know. But remember, he may be on to other topics, but there's still an elephant in the room. You ever, you ever been in a, a situation where you had to address the, the, the really, really obvious thing first, but you had some other stuff to deal with? That, that other stuff you had to deal with, it's still influenced by the giant thing, right? So we're going to have to keep coming back to this, this idea that trials are a persistent reality, always hanging over the heads of James's audience, the world that they lived in. But you ready to pick up the next pearl on James's string? Verse 19. Verse 19. He says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow 
to anger. We'll call a time out there. All right, so I told you a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, to be watching out for all of the occasions in this letter when James drops a certain title of endearment uh, for his audience. What was it? My dear brothers, or some variation of brothers, either brothers or my brothers, or like we said, the top of the mountain, my beloved brothers, right? And that happened some 15 times in this letter. And I told you then uh, that, that there's likely a couple of reasons or reasons I can identify uh, that James continuously drops this term. The first one is that he's shrinking the gap that exists in their own minds between leaders and just the normal Christians. Right? That, that's a gap that we're all kind of guilty of falling into that rut of believing that there's a, a, a JV and a varsity level uh, inside, inside the church. And so uh, the things he's calling his audience to, they're not some second tier level of righteousness. They're the natural things that ought to exist in all of God's people. Things that an authentic faith in Jesus should be bearing demonstrable fruit. The second reason James keeps calling them brothers is because well, he's being very, very intentional to maintain a loving tone even as he launches into things that he's got to correct them about. Welcome to one of those moments. Say hello to one of those moments. Uh, we, we get our first little sense of this carefully measured tone out of James with the first two words of the sentence. Know this. Know this. Meaning, James is not offering a suggestion here. Th this is not a moment where he's saddling up next to his audience in a really friendly, gentle way and dropping a hint about something that they you know, maybe ought to consider. Hey, buddy, I see you struggling there. I know you're having a hard time. Ha has it ever crossed your mind to do it this way instead? That's not what James is aiming at here. No, immediately after James deals with the elephant in the room, he comes flying out of the gate and makes a grand declaration. Know this. Lock this down. James, James states that there is a reality to the posture of God's people that is fundamentally different than the posture of everyone else in the room. This reality is not up for debate. It's not subject to the circumstances going on around it. It's not something that can be picked up or put down again whenever you know, it's expedient socially or economically or politically. James says, let all of God's people understand this truth. This is who God's people are. That's what he says. Which means, church, a failure to walk in this posture is a repentance-level failure. It's a repentance-level failure. It's not simply a personality quirk. Well, you know, I'm going I'm to take action first and ask questions later kind of guy. No. It's not something that we give mere lip service to. Give a little head nod to all the ideologues in the room and then go on about a more pragmatic plan. Now, according to James, God's people are either pursuing this posture or God's people are walking in sin. So what's the posture we're all supposed to be aiming for? Well, he says it explicitly. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Anger. In other words, God's people are to abstain from rushing to action and then truly listen before we carefully respond. God's people are to abstain from rushing to action and then truly listen before we carefully respond. 
James isn't saying anything, anything new here. He's actually echoing uh, several dozen places in the Proverbs. I'll just give you a couple. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs eleven twelve. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Proverbs 51, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. But my favorite, though, uh, probably my favorite proverb even, is Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. In case you've never come across it before, here's Solomon's wisdom for your life. If you ever find yourself in a room where you are outclassed intellectually, just keep your mouth shut. That's what he says. It's better to be seen as the silent type than, than to be seen as the guy who has no idea what you're talking about. Like, like choose your battle there. Don't tip your cards. James says that a fundamental posture of God's people is to practice restraint when everybody else in the room is rushing to say something. Rushing to get that word out there. That our posture is to listen first, to seek understanding and then when it is time to speak to wait in carefully and we can go ahead and add this to the long list of things so far in this letter a list that's going to grow a lot before we get to the end of it we can go ahead and add this to the list of things that james says that are completely upside down to the culture that we find ourselves living in right in a world where 24-hour cable news and social media platforms are a thing like we've created a culture for ourselves where everyone is expected to give a hot take response to every single issue that pops up, right? Whether it's the major issues that everyone's talking about online, or it's the interpersonal conflict that, you know, that turns up in families or workplaces, doesn't, doesn't really matter. You've got to hurry up and prove that you're a card-carrying member of Team Outrage. But not only does that create a populace that assumes their, their opinion is more valuable to the world than it actually is. Like, I got, I got hard news for you. Um, like, there are a lot less people in the world who care about the nuances of your opinion than you think. It's way smaller number than, than what you hope. And not only does it lead to a bunch of people who often have to roll back those earlier uh, assertive statements because, you know, new facts emerge that kind of change the story, or worse, <laughs> or, or much worse, like, People automatically dismiss any new facts because they can't possibly be seen as undermining their previous outrage. That's a fun little wrinkle in our society. But in addition to those things, James paints the picture here in verse 19 that our anger-fueled propensity to be slow to listen and quick to speak, it proves that we actually misunderstand who we are in Christ. Congratulations, you got a couple dozen likes on your online diatribe. Woo! Great job. You asserted yourself in that little office conflict, and now, now people know not to mess with you. Or maybe you, you're not really the confrontational type, so you, your preferred method of operation is to, after that conflict, go and send a bunch of like snarky text messages to your bestie about how wrong that other person was. We've all been guilty, right? But here's the question James asks. Did any of those things paint an accurate picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Where'd that get you? Where'd that get you? It, it may very well have impressed some people. You may have even gotten a laugh out of it or somebody 
thought that you were a big deal, but did you lead a single someone else to righteousness? Where'd that land you? And you may be thinking to yourself, because I'm, I'm tempted to think it too. I mean, I don't know, Stephen, sometimes you've got to fight a different fight, right? Like, you can't always be aiming for the top of the mountain. Sometimes you just got to take the next hill. But James would disagree with us. He would say that there's an inseparable connection between how you talk to people and what it is that you're actually aiming for. Those things cannot be separated. Or, or I can say it a different way. What, whenever we do wade into the discussion of an issue, or whether we do make the comment here or the comment there, whether it's the big public thing or the small interpersonal thing, uh, what we're hoping to get out of that wading in will always produce fruit that other people can see. And James lays out that either-or reality in the next verse, in verse 20. Look at it with me. Slow... Uh, Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of what? So James says that man-made anger does not, cannot, will not produce godly righteousness. Now, there have been some people throughout church history who have tried to look at James 1.20 here and argue that, the, that, that anger is never in bounds for God's people. That it's... That it's at its most core level, it's antithetical to the kingdom of God. And so anger should always be called sin and always be something that's repented of. Uh, three problems with that logic, though. One, to argue that, you have to ignore all the times in the Bible where God gets angry. Two, you've got to ignore all the other times in the Bible where other people get righteously angry. But three, you even have to ignore what James actually said here in, in verse 20. James says the anger of man which implies there's a kind of anger that's external to man. And we've talked about this reality here before at other times. There's, there is such a thing as, as anger that does produce righteousness. And so how in the world do we tell the difference between the righteous kind and the unrighteous kind? Well, in other places in the Bible, especially the letters of Paul, you kind of get this, this rubric that you can work through. Uh, there are a couple important questions that you can ask to try to differentiate between the two. The first question is this. What causes the anger? Right? What causes the anger? When you get angry, is it the same kind of stuff that makes God angry? Or, are we honest here, is it usually more selfish? Something that makes you angry. The consistent example in the Bible is that God gets angry whenever righteousness is belittled or when the strong take advantage of the weak. Uh, <laughs> my angriest moments, just to be honest, it tends to be places in my life where I've been inconvenienced in some relatively minor way. Is that true for you too? All right, I'm the only sinner here. All right. So where the anger comes from is sometimes, oftentimes, not a righteous place for me. But there's a second question that we can ask. Not only what, what causes the anger, but what does the anger cause to come out of you? What's the result of that? It, it, it's this, this backside question that James is focusing on here in verse 20. In the Bible, whenever God gets angry, things get fixed. Things get better. Sin is cast out, people get healed, and the glory of God's name is amplified. My man-made anger usually has the opposite result. I tend to break things. I tend to burn bridges. I tend to say the thing that shouldn't be said for no other reason at all but to score some kind of imaginary points. Again, only sinner in the room, I'm sure. See, the good version of anger comes out of righteousness and always leads to healing and deeper righteousness. 
The bad version of anger comes out of selfishness and always leads to pain and deeper selfishness. And James says that if we're not intentional to be slow to anger, it won't be the righteous kind that we got. We won't be dealing with the righteous kind of anger. The anger of man cannot, does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't matter what other labels we might try to slap on. It doesn't matter how, how justified in a particular moment it might feel. Man-made anger cannot produce righteousness. So how in the world could we ever combat against this, right? And what, are we, what are we supposed to do? I mean, to read something like this, and live in the world that we live in, doesn't it feel like we'll never get there? Is there any practical steps that we can take to help us continue maturing spiritually in this stuff? Things that will practically, actually change how we listen and speak to others? Things that will guard us from man-made, unrighteous anger? Well, James seems to think that there are. He spells that out in verse 21. He says, therefore, (laughs) that's good news if you're frustrated. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. All right, so here's another moment, uh, despite the folks that want to try to argue otherwise, here's another moment where James and Paul are saying very, very similar things. Incredibly similar things. I remember I told you early on in this series that there are some people who want to try to pit James and Paul against each other as if they're preaching different versions of the Gospels. And remember how I told you that it was incumbent upon me as we walked through this letter to prove that they're actually on the same team? Welcome to one of those moments. They're on the same team. What James says here in one verse is something that Paul spells out at length in multiple places. He spells it out in Romans. He spells it out in 1 Corinthians. It's a theme that's scattered all throughout the back half of Ephesians, both chapter 3 and chapter 4. But it's given its most acute attention in Colossians chapter 3. All right? Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 1, it says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Skip down to verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Skip down to verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Skip down to verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Skip down to verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom. So I'll say it again for the people in the back. James and Paul are on the same team. They're on the same team. So what about later on in this letter? I think I remember James saying something about, about faith. It's going to sound like it contradicts Paul. And what, what about that? Well, we'll talk about that when we get there. But before we get there, we need to lock in on the idea of just how incredibly consistent they are before we get to that moment. Because it's going to affect how we read that moment. James tells his audience to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. wickedness. So, so what in the world does that mean? All right? what, what, is that actually, what is he actually saying? What does it mean to put those things away? It means to put them away. 
It means to put them away. Set it down and walk away from it. Distance yourself from it. Uh, treat it as something that does not matter to you anymore. It's something that no longer has any value in your eyes. Something that you don't need and couldn't possibly want. And so it costs you literally nothing to leave it there and never go back to it. Just put it away. And while that's true for all forms of sin, that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 3, James is specifically talking about the context of the speed and manner of how we listen and speak to others. So what does filthiness and rampant wickedness look like in this moment? We can go off in a lot of different directions, but I think he's got something specific in mind. I think the clue for that is found in the alternative. He says, instead, receive with meekness the what? The implanted word, right? In a world that rushes to judge, rushes to speak, in a world that has specific rules that everybody's supposed to follow, that run in the opposite direction of Jesus' kingdom values, in a world that seems to be celebrating more and more every day the loss of being kind to those we disagree with, or or worse, even fair to those we disagree with, the heart that is disciplining it in itself instead to, to take a step back and wonder first what the Bible has to say about a specific issue. It goes looking for eternal understanding rather than just knowledge. The heart that, that is doing, that heart right there is doing one of the most countercultural and righteous actions that can be done in this sin-broken world we're living in. The heart that is teachable first, bendable to the word first, and then wades in with a word-rich response. That person, man, they have put away rampant wickedness. They're not playing the game that everybody else is playing. I don't want to play that game. I refuse to play that game. It gets me nowhere. They are actively putting to death what is earthly in them. And they are letting the word of Christ dwell richly. And in doing so, they've made the conscious decision to pursue that which can actually save their soul, James says. Hear me clearly. Being kind on the internet does not save someone. Being quick to listen and slow to speak does not make you righteous before the Lord. But an authentic faith in Jesus that refuses to build little fiefdoms for yourself, refuses to try to build your little empire, and instead gives all of your allegiance over to Jesus, that authentic faith will produce a practical maturity in you that will forever change how you listen and speak to others. Period. Period. No, it's not a sinless perfection. Isn't it good that God knows and understands our frame? Jesus' death on the cross was for our consistent failure just as much as it was for our initial sinfulness. But hear this, there is a reality to the posture of God's people. And that posture is fundamentally different than the posture of everyone else. This reality is not up for debate. It's not subject to the circumstances going on around it. It's not something that could be picked up or put down again whenever it's expedient, uh, socially or economically or politically. James says, let all of God's people understand this truth. This is what God's people look like. This is who God's people are. So what do we do with this pearl? James plucked one off the string for us. What do we do with this pearl today? How do we respond to God's word? 
Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our, our response is quite obvious, actually. We repent of sin, and we lean into what the text reveals about who our God is and what he is doing. And this week, <laughs> I think it's pretty clear, he's showing us that his people are to look, and, uh, look like him, not only in uh, specific things, but also in the specific context of how we listen and speak. If we don't, there's, there's a problem there. Maybe there are some things that you need to repent of this morning. Maybe, maybe there's a really long list of things. I don't know. Moments where it's clear that James's call is not something you're living up to. Listen, that failure can be lamented and that failure can be repented of, but those who have placed their trust in Jesus, we, we take the next step beyond that and ask God to continue helping us mature in these things. So we first cling to Jesus' finished work on our behalf, a work that saw our failure and accounted for it before he went to the cross. Oh, that's good news for my heart. But then after clinging to Jesus, we take some sensible action steps that help us look more and more like what he has already graciously declared us to be. And so we put some things to death, we're told. Take James's advice, take Paul's advice, put some things to death, and we dwell instead on what Jesus has promised that will bring us life. Not because we need to maintain some level of righteousness to keep him happy, but because there's rest and there's joy found in living consistently with God's good design for us. Why would we try to avoid that? Why would we, why would we not want that? Man, I want that. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's a, that's a time that we set aside to give people space to respond, to, to translate a head response into some kind of action response. I'll, I'll be down front here if you want to talk about what that response might look like. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's word? Absolutely yes. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin. What eventually fleshes itself out and how we listen and speak inconsistently with his character. Listen, it begins first in a, in a heart that has already rejected his good lordship over us. The, the, the speaking and listening, that's a symptom of a much deeper issue. And because of that core level rejection of God and his authority, the Bible teaches that we are all owed the just and righteous punishment for our sin. Death. So what's the answer then? I mean, can, can you clean yourself up in a way that would make God finally happy? Can you get... Can you get busy on some spiritualized to-do list so that you can swing the balance of righteousness to 51% okay and just 49% not so okay and then God is going to smile? Is that how that works? You know, the Bible teaches that even the relatively good things that we do push us further and further away from God when it's done out of a heart that refuses to love Him and follow Him. So what is the answer then? What? Well, the answer is that God must come to us. I got great news for you. That's exactly what he did. He came to us. The Bible teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that he makes us alive again through the grace of his son. The eternal son of God, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that, that I can't live and you can't live and none of us can ever come close to living. He lived, uh, he, he lived sinlessly and then he died on the cross sacrificially as a substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead because he's perfectly righteous. And he had righteousness enough to spare. And now as the 
king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. Again, I'll be, I'll be down there if you want to talk. Let's talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to, I don't know, you need to respond in some other kind of way. For, for some of you, I don't know, for some of you, you've been here checking us out for a while now and it's time to formally join our church family. God has called you here and it's time to publicly commit yourself to our family. Let's go. I'm here for it. Some of you, maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond, uh, need to finally submit to Jesus' command to be baptized. You, you've placed your faith in him, sure. You've, you've, you trust him for salvation, sure, but you haven't listened to him yet when it comes to the public profession of faith. Let, let's talk. We, we can fix that. Maybe you're here this morning and God's been calling you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. It's time to make that gospel call public. And my greatest joy this afternoon would be helping you figure out what those next steps are. Let's, let's talk. Whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for a letter in James that sometimes has to say stuff we don't want to hear. I can build a nice little kingdom for myself if I'm quick to speak. I can get a lot of attention if I rush to anger. But I think I'd rather have righteousness. I think I'd rather have your presence. I'd definitely ha- rather have all the good things you've promised when it comes to living in a way that you called us to live. These things are hard for me. I am insufficient to fix all of the, the in, all of the sinful pieces of my tongue and my character that want to you know, try to make much of myself. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that no matter how well we do on some of these things or how poorly we do so on some of these things, you sent your son to die to reconcile us in spite of all those things. God, help us be more and more like you. I don't know what the world will do to respond to that, but if you're happy, I'm, I'm in a good place. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Call people into your kingdom today for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.